This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, featuring influencers, creatives, and thought leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. Welcome to Synapse Think Tank of the Air. I'm Steve LeBeau. We're here with Vikas Narula. Hi, Steve. Hi, and who's the uh, the proprietor, I should say, of uh, Key Hubs. And uh, also, uh, he's our only guest for this segment of the program, so we'll be uh, finding out a lot about Vikas. And um, one of the things on your resume that stands out is that you went to Maharishi University. I did. So I suppose that's a kind of a common icebreaker when you talk to people. Yes, it, it can be. So the Maharishi, he uh, gained a lot of fame, I think, in the 1960s. He was the guru for the Beatles for a short uh, short period. I don't know how, how much they transcended in all their in, in their meditation with him. But what was it like going to, uh, um, to that university in Iowa? Yes, yes. Well, first, Steve, thanks for having me on your, on your uh, podcast. Sure. Enjoy to be here. Uh, yeah, it was, in a nutshell, the experience growing up there was pretty positive and enriching. It was a, a pretty nurturing community of really um, lighthearted people. My parents uh, immigrated to Canada from India in the 60s, and they discovered Maharishi when they were in Canada, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they were searching for, for some spiritual um, – communities and they really – and they were exploring different forms of yoga and what have you, searching for a guru, if you will. And mm-hmm. they, they really liked um, Maharishi's philosophy. So they, they became really entrenched in his his teachings, his movement. And when they found out that he had started a school in a university in, in Iowa, they they my parents wanted to pick up and move us there so my brother and I could could get a taste of his education. And so we moved when I was entering the sixth grade, and I went to the Maharishi school from sixth to twelfth grade. Oh, they have a K twelve. Yeah, they have a K twelve. Oh, they have the whole thing. Yes, yes. And then I went to university there, got my undergrad from there. So it was an unusual place. Uh, you know, <laughs> we were one of the few Indians in the community at that time, which mainly, is very ironic. Uh, mainly white Americans, I presume. Well, it was people from all over the world. But oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But a lot of yeah. Because it's the only people. one he has in the world. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's definitely one of the larger ones. I think it's the only one in, in North America. Oh, okay. For sure. And so it was it was a unique place to grow up, right? Because we had people from all over. We're in a small town in Iowa. We were um, we were doing a lot of meditation, a lot of yoga at a time when it wasn't really mainstream like it mm-hmm. is now and accepted. Right. It's changed quite a bit. Yeah, well, it's become more wide known, well known, and and you know it's a much more common practice among the mainstream. Whereas back then it wasn't as much. What years were you there? 
I was there between 1983 and 1996. Okay. Yes. So uh, meditation had been around for a while, but it was still not quite uh, the the stuff of all the science magazines that it is now. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it's went through waves. Like in the 60s, there was a big wave with all the, you know, famous people getting into it, like the Beatles and what have you. Right. And, and then maybe it went out of style in, the, in part of the well, 70s. Well, the, the, the LSD wore off. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what it was. Maybe. But, you know, another um, interesting thing is Deepak Chopra. I don't know if you've heard of him. Sure. Pretty He's well a known. significant uh, public intellectual on, on matters um, primarily health-related. Yeah. Yeah, he's a physician. And, and so he he came into the TM movement in the in the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. He would come and, and speak in Fairfield at the university. He was a, kind of a right-hand man for the Maharishi for some period of time. And then – they had some sort of fallout in the in that, the that that always happens with the 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 master and the student kind of yeah maybe so the, but he really launched out of out of the TM movement so we mm. got to we got to hear a lot of his wisdom and insight before he was also well known i remember he he got invited on oprah around that time and then wrote some books and kind of broke from the the TM movement and well, went out on his own so once once you've been to oprah yeah, exactly. I mean that's a little bit of higher mountaintop than than most gurus, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so we were just exposed to a lot of interesting perspectives and a lot of inspirational teachers, and um, it definitely shaped who I am to a large degree and laid a foundation for looking at the world through a, a metaphysical lens. And so, yeah, I, I I've went through periods of. Embracing it, rejecting it, resenting it, oh, and making peace with it. Just yeah. like everybody grows up. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, when in whatever doctrine you grow up in, you know, people have their own journey, and I had my own too. Well, I grew up a Protestant, and so in my teenage years, you protest just what it's kind of the tradition, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Protestants protest. Right. So you protested the Protestant. Right. Right. Faith. In fact, I I, I lean towards uh, studying Indian philosophy. That's what I did in college. Mm-hmm. Same and, here. <laughs> So we have a lot in common. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, in the, well, I did it much earlier. I did it in the 70s, okay. which was maybe not that much earlier. Not that much a, earlier, yeah. Just a decade earlier. Mm-hmm. But um, in those days uh, in philosophy, they would say, the, the other philosophers would say, that's not philosophy. That's, uh-huh. that's like poetry or mysticism or something like that. Right, but, right, um, right. Uh, and nowadays, I think it's kind of the shorthand now is mindfulness, yeah, that's right? that's a big uh, a big trend these days as well. And the point being is that your attitude can change your whole perception of the world. For sure, yes. Whereas now we have a lot of people that um, obviously live in different worlds. When you look about the the political tribes, they call them these days, mm-hmm. totally radically radically different perceptions of what's right and wrong and what's true and false, um, what's global warming and what's not. Mm-hmm, definitely. Did you learn to stand back from all those narrow perspectives and see like the big picture? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I've, growing up, I found myself in certain camps, <laughs> you know, uh, us against them. Uh, but I think maybe as I've gotten older and have gotten have exposed myself to people across many different spectrums, whether it be political, racial, religious. I personally have have taken the path of being less of a us against them, and I've wanted to have more of an attitude of tell me your story and help me understand what's shaped you and what's got you to where you are. And when I 
when I hear that story, I can I I can understand why people see the world the way they do, and I and I imagine that if I was in their shoes and walked all their steps, I'd have a similar point of view. So that's mm. kind of the approach I, I like to take now. Um, well, that sounds very mature. Well, I don't know. It's, it's an evolution. <laughs> well, I mean, most people don't. It's it, it seems like the obvious common sense thing to do is to try to, you know, they used to say walk in someone else's shoes. Yeah. Right? Basic empathy, sympathy, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But um, it seems to be rare. It seems like the, 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 the sense of even tolerance is disappearing <laughs> these days. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps. I think when we uh, when we get uh, insular or we get when we're in homogenous circles, right? Whether that's a certain way of thinking, a certain way of looking, a certain way of believing, it's it's easy to become distrustful and and um, fearful. You know, I got to a point in my life, and I continue to. Uh, push myself out of out of the circles I'm I'm acquainted with hmm. so that I don't get too uh, insular in my thinking too nested yeah exactly try to keep yourself up well how was that living in Minnesota Minnesota is kind of a place where people already have their nests yes. you can try to break into other nests <laughs> yeah. you a nest reader yes. oh yeah that's an interesting. egg reader right so Minnesota does have this reputation of it's like it's hard to break into the established communities that are here. Um, so I'm sort of a transplant, even though I've been here 20, 22 years. Oh, that's nothing. Yeah, that's nothing, exactly. Um, yeah, I noticed that. You know, people people have their own social circles. It, it, you know, there's there's maybe some cultural, the Scandinavian cultural thing where, where people keep to themselves a little bit more. They're friendly, but but they don't want to invite you in kind of thing. <laughs> friendly, but not too intimate, not too... Yeah, uh, but, I, but I, you know, I've, I've had... Uh, a spectrum of experiences with people here, mostly all positive, where, where people are friendly. And it does maybe take time for people to warm up, but there's curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, people people are curious. They're welcoming. Um, but I, when, I, when I think about who we've really bonded with, like my family, we do tend to maybe connect more with other transplants. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't scientifically studied it. But <laughs> like just off the cuff thinking about it, like maybe that was easier, right? Because right. neither groups or the families or, or folks had established networks here. So it's like, well, why don't we, you know, form a network? Um, find each other. Yeah, find each other. But um, when I look at my – the circles I've been walking through in my time in Minnesota – you know, up until fairly recently, I was either mingling with people of Indian origin, because uh, that's what I know, or people of of, of maybe Caucasian background, because that's what I know as I'm familiar with. People who are middle class, uh, educated, college educated, and things. And that was really the extent of my my world, my my networks. Uh, but a few years ago, through long and winding road of of connection and serendipity. I got invited to teach uh, as an adjunct at Minneapolis Community and Technical College. Over on Hennepin. Yeah, exactly. And that really opened my eyes and my heart and my perspective to 
people from, you know, many different backgrounds. You know, I thought I knew diversity because growing up in Fairfield, even though we were in a small rural community, <laughs> there were people from all over the world at the Maharishi University. In fact, when I was there, it was called Maharishi International University. Mm. It's, it's since changed their name to Maharishi University of Management. But when I was there, it was very international. It still is. And so I always felt, and I've traveled around the world, you know, through business and, you know, personal travels. And I always felt like I had been exposed to diversity. Hmm. But when I, when I started teaching at MCTC, I realized that I really didn't know diversity because the, the students in my class uh, were represented diversity in every dimension you could think of. And probably the most important is was socioeconomic status. You know, many of my students were uh, homeless. Some of them were homeless or had experienced homelessness. Many of them had been incarcerated for large parts of their adult life, um, struggled with addiction or uh, you know, criminal activity and, and all these. And, there were, and, and so hearing their stories and getting to know them on a personal level really just blew my mind and uh, challenged all my, my biases and prejudices. Like I realized you can't really judge a book by its cover. And um, I'm just grateful for that, that experience. I taught five semesters there and it transformed my thinking. Hmm. transformed my thinking and it really, I think, deepened my sense of compassion for what people have to endure in, in, in our fully developed country, right? <laughs> the most you, powerful country in the world. Because There's, you really never had to think about it before. Yeah, I never was exposed. I was never exposed. It was all this distant, these distant stories, impersonal. But all of a sudden when they became personal, I realized how hard it was for people to just get around the city. Like – People struggled with having reliable transportation. People struggled with – were born into just unimaginable circumstances with everything stacked against them, uh, the system stacked against them. And despite all that, still finding a way, <laughs> you know. So there was, there was well, this well, mixed feeling. They, they were in school. Yeah, exactly. They were happy. They were in school. So there was this mixed emotions of, wow, isn't it, isn't it phenomenal how resilient the human spirit is? Isn't it – you know, heartbreaking how there's huge disparities in our in our own city, in our communities, and many of us don't realize uh, the struggle that everyday people go through, um, and realize and realize like when you get to know someone on the level of friendship, how we're all the same, we're all seeking the same things, we're we're all we all smile, we all have hearts that beat, you know, we bleed the same blood. It's there's just something beautiful about transcending the the hierarchy of society and and getting to know people from such different backgrounds. You know, I just I can so many stories of tragedy and triumph, so many stories of resiliency and 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 um, unimaginable pain. Hmm. Did this uh, change your sense of career? I think it well, yeah. It, it changed the course of my career, and in a lot of ways, it it um, in a lot of ways it uh, catapulted my career because I, I started sharing about my experiences there. I started writing about it, and and that led to new opportunities. Even though that's not really why I went into it, but it's it's made me sensitive sensitive to how can I be a part of the solution. Rather than just a um, a passive passive uh, citizen, and because um, once your eyes are opened up, you can't ignore it anymore. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's just allowed me, I think, to connect more authentically with people of all different backgrounds. It's, um, and, and then it, it, it motivates me to want to connect more because it's like, I know these people and they, they, they have so much to offer through their hearts and their stories. Uh, it's not about, it's not all about how can we help these people, <laughs> you know, or people who struggle is it's, I'm missing out by not being connected to these individuals. Like they have something to offer a perspective that, um, that's transformational and inspirational. And, uh, when we think about underprivileged communities or marginalized individuals, it's often it's often um, approached with the lens of how can we help these folks, and and yes, there's that piece of it, and it's more like no, I I think I'm getting more out of this relationship, this friendship. It's a mutual exchange. It's not a it's not a there's no hierarchical separation and and that's something I was missing, that perspective I was missing. And so I'm really much more intentional now about seeking French, seeking out French, unlikely friendships. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, unlikely friendships. Um, so do you go places that you'd never gone before? How do you, how do you find the unknown? Yeah, well, I, I've stayed connected to many of my students. Many of my students have become dear friends of mine. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. And so that that connection has allowed me to expand my circles in in different parts, different communities. And yeah, and so I and so I get invited to spaces that I hadn't gotten invited mm. to before. I I go to parts of the city that I was never exposed to before because of those connections and friendships and um it keeps it real for me, and and uh, you know I think many of them. There's an exchange, you know. I think I hope that they benefit by being friends with me. I benefit by being friends with them, and I feel like I feel like we have a, a lack of friendship across uh, certain divides in, in our in our communities across the country. And so, for when I look at my own journey, it started with exposure. At first, I didn't even have exposure, and that exposure then led to connection. Once there was a connection, that connection led to friendship. And once there was friendship, it changed everything for me. Like I just couldn't see the world the same way. I couldn't, I couldn't hold on to my biases and prejudices because, you know, everyone's my friend. <laughs> you met some new people that changed your mind. Yeah, yeah. So I, I hope I, my my hope is that we can just create more friendship. Across well, these bubbles. See, now you're touching on exactly what Synapse does. We have a big topic yes. called the friendship gap. And oh, I'll yeah. It's get, a beautiful thing you've created. I'll get back to that in a moment, but we're here talking with Vikas Narula. Did I say that <laughs> closely correct? Yes. Vikas yes. Narula. <laughs> and he's the uh, the uh, operator, the uh, the originator and co-founder of Key Hubs. Yes. And we'll talk about that when we return here on Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. (music) 
And we're back. I'm Steve LeBeau here with Synapse Think Tank of the Air, talking, um, boy, about some ethereal things yeah. here with uh, Vikas Narula, uh, creator and co-founder of Key Hubs, which you're talking about making friends. And uh, I was talking about the friendship gap. I'll briefly say what, what, what that is as far as um, Synapse is concerned. I, uh, there's a study from 2014 that analyzed the racial composition of social networks. Mm. And what they found is the average white person knows one black person. The average black person knows uh, eight white people, but no Asians. Mm. So mm. there's these gaps. <laughs> yes. In the Midwest, 82% of the white people know only other white people. Mm. And mm-hmm. 65% of the blacks know only other blacks. So that's what I call the friendship gap. Uh, there's all these disparities in town, as you're mentioning, alluding to economic and otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think it's connected to the friendship gap. When people are making policy decisions, they don't have any friends that they're actually exactly. making policies about. Exactly. No, it's so true. It's it, I'm fully in line with you, Steve. I, I can't agree. But you know what's so interesting is even though – and if you look at the social science research on how networks tend, tend to form – it's very natural for birds of a feather to flock together. You know, you look like me and you think like me, so let's hang out and we'll connect you to other we'll connect with other people who look like us and think like us. There's there's studies and business articles that talk about this, but there's a growing body of research that points to the fact that having more diverse connections is not and diverse relationships is not just good for business, right? So leadership teams that have more Diversity <clears throat> at the top level tend to outperform their industry peers. Really? Oh, yeah. There's there's a Harvard Business Review and what have you. Not only that, CEOs, there's a research that just came out in the last year that shows that CEOs with more diverse networks, social networks, so this isn't their connections or how diverse their organization is, just simply the CEO's network. If it's more diverse, their organizations outperform their peers to the tune of $30 million in market capitalization. Now that's real money. That's real money. I mean, so there's a financial impact to this. And then not only that, there's research that suggests that the biggest predictor of career success has to do with the diversity of our networks. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, this has been written up in Inc. And, and, you know, other other well-known business magazines, Forbes or what have you. And, uh, you know, this has been my own personal experience as I've moved through more diverse networks. My career has blossomed, uh, but if the, the whole premise around well, so so why is it? Well, how does diversity contribute to success personally, professionally, organizationally? And it has to do with this diverse perspective. When when you know people with vastly different points of view, you put yourself in the position of being a translator of of different ideas, and that's really the basis of the creative combination of ideas, which is the, the the foundation of innovation, and we know what innovation does. So what's really interesting, there's this dichotomy. It's, it, it's natural for us to stay in our comfort zone. It's natural for us to gravitate towards sameness. But growth, prosperity, learning, innovation all happen when we push ourselves out of that comfort zone. Hmm, just like you did. Well, yeah, I stumbled into it. You exactly. learned to do it. Uh, yeah, you, you, yeah. I think when, when you, yeah, I, I, I think it happened to me because I stepped into entrepreneurship. I had an idea I was trying to bring to life, and so I had to connect with people. I had to start networking. I had to, you know, break out of my bubbles to to survive as an entrepreneur. And in that journey, I 
found more and more diverse networks, you know, and I sought out more and more diverse networks because I made a point of meeting a lot of people and I wanted variety and I wanted growth and learning. Now, when you talk <laughs> about diversity, you mean not just race or culture, but also socioeconomic class, maybe uh, uh, career paths? As, yeah, everything. There's diversity in many dimensions. You know, it's, it's uh, political, r- religious, ethnic, uh, socioeconomic, yeah, absolutely. I think the thing that was missing in my networks the most was was probably political diversity and socioeconomic. Hmm. I would, I mean, I was exposed to some religious diversity. I was exposed to ethnic diversity, but uh, but those were the two areas where I was completely lacking. I was unconscious of it. Uh, but when I stepped into that classroom at MCTC, that's when I was like, whoa, I really uh, didn't know diversity and, and where have these people been my whole mm. life? Right. And, <laughs> now, and, 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 and you happen to, to walk into that classroom. Most people don't have a similar experience or if they do, uh, they'll turn their back on it and try to ignore it, right? If you well, I don't know. I don't know what other teachers' experiences. I, I don't think no, you I, can. No, I, I don't mean teachers. I mean just in pu- uh, people in general. Don't they, have the opportunity they, they try, to step they, into that? They try to stay away from such <laughs> opportunities. There are people that I know, uh, perhaps in the western suburbs, that will not go on Lake Street because it's right, too it's, dangerous. Right. It's that, it's that fear and distrust. See, what I would say to that is, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's so many things to say around that. Yeah, I mean, there are probably points in my life where I had similar fears. And, and I think about, well, what, what was the source of that fear? It was just lack of exposure. Uh, I didn't know what I was missing. I think that's the thing that people on either side, I mean, just like you were saying, uh, you know, my, okay, so my parents, okay, immigrated to this, immigrated to the West back in the 60s. They've been here almost 50 years. They have been here 50 years. But if I look at who their closest friends are right now, they're all people of Indian origin. Mm. So they've lived a life, they've chose to live a life of comfort and familiarity. Uh, and and they, they have prejudice this to this very day not and it's because they're not exposed you know they're simply not exposed and that that level of um uh isolation is pervasive across pretty much all demographics uh you could say caucasians are mostly just like that social network research you alluded to earlier some of my best friends are caucasians Yes, of course. <laughs> right? And and so you look at any like any um religion or racial group, they're mostly hanging out with people of the same race. Right. And what I would say to what my experience has been and what the research would suggest, scientific research is that it's all it's to our benefit to have exposure, connection and friendship with people who look and think different from you. And I know it's uncomfortable. It's challenging. It's not easy. They have a, like diversity and inclusion programs, and from what I hear, people hate them. Like where inside organizations? Well, yeah, inside organizations, or corporations. Well, they're they're probably it's probably because they're so. Um, I should say that white people hate them. They're contrived, right? Well, uh, I read one. Well, speaking of Harvard Business Review, uh, I read one article that they hate them because they're they have to do them. Mm. So the part of yeah, it's like a check, it's, it's a check the box exercise rather than uh, an intrinsically motivated exercise. If they find out if you volunteer to get involved in some diverse program, then they're more likely to to 
engage with the people and, and have that kind of sympathy formation that, that you've experienced when you taught at MCC. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, they rebel. Yeah, it could be. It could be, right. I mean, people like to stick to their knitting. And, um, you know, what if we – what uh, the diversity and inclusion, sometimes I wonder, it's – it's such an overused term, and people have their. It has a certain connotation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people who who are in the minority may not like that term. People who are in the majority may not like that term. But what if what if we reframed it? Like you're you're starting to use different terminology. Like what if it was about fostering friendship or um, like some other term that that's more inspiring and, and motivating than this, than a cor- kind of a corporatized right. terminology. You know what I mean? Like what if we took away the professional aspect, stripped away our title and status and, and this notion that or any, any kind of notion of, of superiority and just say, let's connect as human beings, you know, let's, Let's get to know one another. And you're you're creating that. And there's several in the community that are creating that. We talked about Jane and her work, Jane Barish. Mm-hmm. And what what's really inspiring is there's a lot of initiatives, I think. People like you taking the power into their own hands to foster um, friendships across unlikely divides. And I think it's just doing more of that. I mean, I, I think there's a consciousness, uh, a, a developing consciousness in our community around the, this value. And and many people are contributing to this narrative. The research is contributing to the narrative. You're contributing to the narrative. People are discovering the wonder and beauty of connecting with our fellow man, mm. right? With the 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 one the, the teeming variety of humanity available right here in our community. You know, people there's an appreciation for that, and I think it's just going to grow, and eventually. I mean, what's beautiful about our country, the United States of America, is that there's beauty in all parts of the world, right, Steve? I mean, you, you travel the world and there's amazing cultures and people everywhere. There's, you can find something beautiful everywhere, no matter where it is. What's awesome about this country is it's home to all of that. Mm. You know, I, I travel back to India. India is an amazing place, but, you know, it's mostly Indians, right? Okay. I mean, that, wait, let me piece that together. Right. You know what I mean? Like, some people ask me, would you ever want to live in India? India is a beautiful place and I have family there, but I, I think what I would really miss if I lived in India is the variety of, of humanity hmm. that, that we have here in America and other urban centers around uh, North America and, and some places in Europe. And, and that's, I love it when I can go to a party, sit in a room, eat at a restaurant. And I have people from Asia, Africa, South America, North America, you know, all sitting, interacting, learning from one another. Like, what an opportunity! Hmm. Uh, what a what a gift we have. It it seems like the, um, I mean, when you think of inclusion, try to. I go back to the uh, 2016 presidential campaign. Bernie Sanders. They were trying to pin him down. Are you too Jewish or not Jewish enough? What's your religion? And he said, basically, my religion is that we're all in this together. Mm. And we got to think that way and act that way. Uh, Go Bernie. I I agree with that. Regardless of anything else that he, uh, any other policies that he might promote, I I agree with that one. We're all in this together. Mm. But then when when you set that out as your standard, as your ideal, there are some people, and it's usually kind of a political split, 
I think that's the sharpest one now because there's a whole group of people that reject science. How, now, here we're talking about the scientific research that shows the, the value of meditation, that shows the value of diverse networks. You can do research that shows um, your, your company will make more money if you have diverse networks. But if people reject the research, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I think there's research isn't going to be everything. People, I think people have to have their own experience. And, um, you know, people could have beat me over the head for years that you need to diversify your networks and this, that, and the other. Um, it's not a cognitive thing. They can't tell you to be diverse. Yeah, you but can't. But the experience, you, like you said, the experience. I think I think it's really about you know I do I do some talks about um, you know connection and, and diversifying networks and a lot of people will ask me well how I, I want to diversify my networks I know it's good for me but how do I do it <laughs> okay and and so I think about like for me it's 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 been a natural evolution over several years right. and to me it's now second nature to want to get to know another human being, to want to, to get excited about meeting someone who's vastly different from myself. Um, but I realized that for people who aren't used to doing that, there is this question of like, well, how? How do I do this? And, and so I, I prescribe a, a couple of strategies for, for people, regardless of where they are in, in their journey of, of connecting with humans. And when I think about my own journey, the thing that really got me out of my bubble was my desire to bring an idea to life. Hmm. That was really the fuel. And and it w- and really like when, when, when you listen to a lot of the great entrepreneurs, Steve Jobs, what have you, you know, when they talk about how do you become successful at bringing an idea to life, you have to love it. You have to be passionate about it. You have to want to do it even if it made you no money at all. That's that's where the magic is, and so when I think about how can how can you step out of your how can someone step out of the bubble their bubble whatever bubble they find themselves in, I think it's most important for that individual to think about: Do you have something you want to bring to life? Something that might not even be in line with what they're currently working on. You know, we're all creative spirits, and so the question is: Is what is wanting to be brought into the world through you. Maybe it's artistic, maybe it's um, scientific, maybe it's entrepreneurial, maybe maybe it's just a career change, right? Maybe it's stepping into some new association. Maybe it's associating with a different discipline. So think of uh, what I like to do is I like to get people to think of get them to think about wh- what is what is attractive. What is their heart calling them to that's attractive, that's a little bit outside their comfort zone, and go in that direction? Hmm. What do you want, see, really want to do but have been afraid to do exactly. it? Exactly. Because that is the beginning of a, of a journey into growth, learning, and new circles of connection. And I think – so that's how it, how it started for me, and I think that's how it starts for a lot of people. And as I continued to walk that journey, I found myself – in circles that were more and more different. It wasn't like an, it was not wasn't like I went from my bubble, my comfort comfortable bubble to like a very stark and different circle. That would have been like it could have been frightening, right? It could have been frightening, it could have been jarring to my system, but it was a, a very gradual evolution. But if you have a desire to bring something to life and it's motivated by passion and love, 
I think that's the beginning of an adventure that will lead to new kinds of connections, more diverse connections. So like, for example, if, I mean, there's, so tell me, I mean, you tell, you, you, you have an incredible story, you know, Steve, when I, when, I mean, does that resonate with you? Well, uh, yes, it does. In fact, <laughs> a lot of it does. I, I've, I've pursued my passions all my life, whether I make money or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm one of those. Yeah, yeah. Kind I think like we all a, should. Kind of like an artist, only it's uh, involving, you know, all different courts, sorts of media, radio, TV, and and uh, social enterprise. Yeah. But, uh, mm-hmm. but I think that's right, because the way you're talking, it's like a per- first a person has to change themselves. Mm-hmm. And then that's one of the things. Then you start seeing everything differently. Mm-hmm. So once you crack that wall, uh, there are a lot of possibilities left. The thing that's been shocking me intellectually lately, the last few years, is the realization that all of our ideas are inventions. People just made them up. Mm-hmm. All of the, the they say humankind's greatest achievement is building civilization. Well, that's it. We we built it. We made it up. It's yes. it doesn't. It's not like God made it and it has to be this way. It's like people came up with this stuff and we can change it. Absolutely. So once I realized that, all the walls came tumbling down, you know, yeah. maybe yeah. with a little coal train behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I, I love that. So I think, I think that, um, I think when we follow our, our heart and our joy, it, it, it naturally, it becomes easier to step out of our comfort zone because there's always going to be fear. I, I still have fear about things. But what helps me push through the fear is, is the joy of the process and the, the projected joy that I know is on the other side of that fear. <laughs> and then, like so many fears, once you confront it, it's not really that big of a deal. No, it's, it, it tends it, It's more fun than anything else. Yeah, yeah. The fear is definitely bigger than, we've, than it needs to be. I hmm. think, yeah. The only thing we have to fear. Yes. We're uh, listening to uh, Vikas and uh, Vikas Narula and myself philosophizing here yes. during, uh, which is what you're supposed to do during the Think Tank of the Air. And we'll do some more of that thinking uh, when we return after this. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back with Vikas Narula, the originator and co-founder of Key Hubs. Tell me about Key Hubs. That's your business. Yes, it is. We haven't is. gotten to, to your commercial yet. Oh, yeah, my commercial. Yeah, well, so I spent the first 15 years of my career working for a couple of startup software companies in town. and This town? This town, Minneapolis, yeah. Well, one of the companies started in my town of Iowa where I went okay. to school, and then it got acquired, and that's what brought me up here 22 years ago. Oh, right. So I worked for two companies over the course of 15 years. They, they were wildly successful. I, I learned and grew through that experience, uh, but but definitely felt like there were times I was living in Dilbert World, and I uh, went back to business school 12 years ago and got introduced to this idea of informal networks, that work actually gets done through human connection and relationship more so than the hierarchy. So the, you don't look at your job, your uh, the hierarchy chart, the organizational chart. That doesn't get things done. It's people dealing with other people. Yeah, the trust networks that exist in organizations. And this this concept really resonated with me. And 
struck a chord. I wanted to apply it where I was working at the time, looked for some tools and services. I didn't find what I was looking for. And that was really the the genesis of Key Hubs. I thought maybe I should create a product service that could make this a more mainstream practice inside businesses, getting leaders to map the networks inside their the people networks in their organizations. The way things actually happen rather than what the chart says. Exactly. So that leaders could make better decisions and we could help them put a small dent in this Dilbert phenomenon that we know exists out there. <laughs> so yeah, it started as a pet project back in 07 and I quit my job at the end of 09 and I've been doing that full time for the last nine years and we've worked with a very diverse group of organizations, big and small here in the cities and beyond and we've um, you know, provided insight and clarity to, to countless teams and leaders around the networks in their organization. So that was that became the foundation of of key hubs. That's why it, so we're really identifying the key hubs in organizations, key influential hubs. How do you how do you find that out? Um, we find that out simply by deploying a very simple survey, asking people to identify the folks that they connect with, trust, are inspired by. And then we have software that aggregates that data, visualizes that data, analyzes that data. and we Maps it out. Maps it out, exactly. And then we provide some recommendations. We interpret that data, provide recommendations, and, and help our clients take full advantage of that informal dynamic so that they can uh, grow the right talent, uh, form the right teams, uh, leverage those individuals that can help the organization shift and be more nimble, transform if necessary. So there's a variety of different applications by no, of knowing this data. And so that's the work that we're involved in. Boy, I'm wondering if, um, you know, they have their organizational chart, you know, A goes to B, and you're saying, well, the way it actually works, according to your key hubs, A goes to Z. Do they then go and restructure their organizational chart so that A does go to Z officially? Sometimes. It depends. Um it depends. Sometimes it may be a formal change. Sometimes it might just be an informal informal change. Like we're going to just create a, a team that's going to move this initiative forward, but it's not going to – the team isn't going to be made up of the usual suspects. It's going to be these unconventional folks at the table who have influence, not necessarily title, but influence. Would you have, say, a marketing team that might have somebody from the manufacturing side? Yeah, absolutely. Is I mean, I think there's – it's, it's about getting the right people across regions and divisions working together. It's also about getting the right folks who have influence that, but aren't necessarily at the same level of the hierarchy aligned and rowing in the same direction. Hmm. Do you come across businesses that you would describe as having a dysfunctional culture? Sure, yes. We've worked, we've worked with organizations that are <laughs> functional and we've seen dysfunctional and we've seen everything in between. How do you... How do you fix a dysfunction? Well, first to understand where the dysfunction is, you know. Well, so it hurts first, here, doc. Yeah, exactly. It's like a scan, like when you go in to get an X-ray. We're looking at the insides, the nervous system of the organization. And once we, once we tap the wisdom of everyone in the organization, their perspectives, we can quickly pinpoint where the strengths are, where the uh, vulnerabilities are where the sources of toxicity are. You're like a psychologist. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, organizational psychologist of, of sorts. Yeah, so the first is let's understand what's happening. 
once we understand what's happening, now we can create some strategies to leverage what's working well and mitigate what's not working well. Hmm. And then we can come in and reassess. So we have a couple of so we're we have a couple of new things that we're rolling out. So we started in this world of surveying where we'd capture data at a point in time and now we're developing like a software platform that can um, that can capture some of these insights in real time. So real-time employee feedback, sentiment, um, health, those kinds of things. So if you're in a meeting and everybody from the meeting is <laughs> hitting the SOS uh, button, <laughs> uh, something's going wrong in that meeting. Right, yeah. Now we, now we have vehicles to, to capture that and make it visible to the people who need to know. Well, I suppose you could register their heart, heartbeat, right? Their <laughs> pulse. And we could, we the could. tension curling up their neck. Sure. Could you have a yeah biofeedback for <laughs> for organization for function? The um, well, uh, I've talked to several you know a variety of consultants in my work at the Business Magazine at the Business Journal, mm. and some of these uh, people will tell me that the vast majority of businesses are dis- dysfunctional. Either they have a dysfunctional culture, or that the CEO. Someone said that eighty three percent of the CEOs are just whacked out they 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 are the biggest problem in their own organization it could be we we know that lots of people leave their jobs not because of their organization but because of their manager mm. you I, don't you don't leave your job you leave your boss yeah and you know i worked for two companies and the two reasons i left them were largely because of a boss so i'm like poster child of that research huh so yeah man, you know hierarchy can create strange behaviors in people and and we know that a large portion of the workforce has been disengaged for long periods of time. And I, I think there's a variety of reasons for that. But uh, I think a big part of it is is management. It's it's lack of autonomy. It's uh, lack of purpose. It's um, – do, do you think the hierarchical structure is inherently flawed? I think – yeah. well, I mean, I mean inherently flawed. I think there's a place for it. Um, it may never entirely go away, but there are organizations experimenting with different models, self-organizing teams, uh, networked organizations. I think the hierarchy is is the management practice of the last century, and I think this next century is is going to be a disruption of that. I really do think that more and more people are going to be experimenting with different models of management that that don't um, that don't rely as heavily on the hierarchy. Boy, there there are movies and plays, and, and I suppose it's happened in real life. Um, I think uh, I forget the titles of them, but the the plot is there's this uh, uh, boat, you know, probably a, a fancy yacht, and you have you know the the rich lords and ladies and then you have all the crew and then they they're shipwrecked and it turns out the most functional person is one of the butlers yeah and so they run everything and it turns out that the lords and ladies are totally useless <laughs> and then as soon as they get back in the boat and go into uh back to civilization you know the butler becomes a butler again even though he's the most uh-huh. competent person yeah fascinating so, um i wonder if it's like that in a business if hey, there you is. do it right Hey, this guy is this key hub person here on on row Z is actually the one that's the reason for your success. If you would let him or her have more freedom and control, you'd have a better business. But someone wants to stick on that top rung. Yeah, there's part of it's that part of it they don't even know, and the butler doesn't even know. 
that they have that they're this kind of contributor. Yeah, you know. So yes, that's a that's a beautiful analogy. Very similar. I'll have to find that movie and give you the name of it. You need, yeah, I would love to see that. <laughs> I'll I'll splice that in later. Yes, exactly. But um, <laughs> uh, but that is kind of the issue in our in our civilization as well. Mm-hmm. In our, our political culture, some people get in control, whether they deserve to be there or not. Yes, it happens. But that's a that's probably beyond your job description to figure that out. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll get there. I mean, I think that um, you know, formal leaders have have some level of decision making power. Obviously, it sets the tone. Mm-hmm. We've seen that you know in in our own country, and. Um, ultimate power is always in the hands of the collective population. If we if we're organized and mm. aligned, if we're not divided and conquered, yeah, if we're not divided and conquered. So, I think there'll always be some measure of hierarchy inside organizations and beyond. And I think leaders would be more effective if they understood where the informal powers were as well, and if if people inside organizations and in a society at large see that they can be an influence regardless of the tone that's being set by the hierarchy. I mean, I think we've seen that in, in, in our country that despite some, some narratives from, you know, the top or, or certain political groups, there are people stepping up all the time with, I think, a more inclusive progressive and inspiring narrative. And uh, that's just informal networks playing out in society. Wow, so they're so they're everywhere. So you have these influential people popping out of the grassroots. Yeah, I mean, don't we see that? Well, we do see that. People come out of nowhere and yeah. then it's a matter of well, um, then there's another movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, tell me a movie about that. We can go guide our philosophy through uh, from the Hollywood perspective, Viva Zapata. Have you ever seen that one? No, I haven't. I think Marlon Brando plays a Mexican bandit turned uh, president of Mexico. Uh, they have a big revolution, and uh, and then as soon as he's president, <laughs> then he turns into a jerk, just like the previous president. Right. Oh, yes. So it's like you're, you know, something about the office. Well, yes. the adage it's a sexist one. The office makes the man, but. It's like whoever sits there turns into a jerk. Right. It's that idea that power corrupts, right? Right. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Well, I think it. The hierarchy can do strange things to people. Power status can do strange things to people. I think it's. I think good leaders mm-hmm. always uh, keep their feet on the ground and and they keep their hearts with the people, regardless of their status. Mm. I think that's what makes a great leader in society and in business. And um, I hope that our work is is helping leaders see that more clearly. You're identifying leaders. Yeah, informal, exactly, informal especially. And then, boy, you, 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 you look online or whatever, I don't know what list you are, but there's just a million offerings for leadership training. Mm. It's like, what's wrong with these leaders? <laughs> they need training, they, and then there's coaching. It's... Um, well, I suppose you're, it's lonely at the top. You can't talk to your your people and get all the answers. You got to talk to somebody outside the your boat. Yeah, to, yeah. To uh, get some guidance. I think that's important. Yeah, it is lonely at the top, and and it's hard to get real, honest feedback. 
from within your organization when you're at the top. So I don't think there I don't think leadership consultants and coaches are going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> Which isn't necessarily a bad thing for me. It's a growth it. business <laughs> identifying uh, leaderships. Yeah. The um do you have you you, you kind of used serendipity to, to land where you are, right? The, mm-hmm. You're pursuing your interest. Are you getting an itch of there's something on your horizon of your uh, consciousness that's saying, hey, this might be a direction to move? Are you moving or are you kind of holding in, in a holding pattern for a while, just uh, carrying out your, your, uh, your, your work with different companies? That's a great question. No, I actually have some new hobbies and passions that have um, started to take flight in the last couple of years. I wrote a, wrote about it or hinted at it in a recent blog post. So I'm really passionate about human connection and bringing people together. I started to host monthly monthly gatherings um, to bring people together to essentially hug. Um, I f- a big hug? Yeah, a, a hug gathering. Um, I feel like, like – Like a hug orgy. Yeah, yeah, with, without – any kind of sexual connotation. Right, exactly. just, just the, the, the your platonic, <laughs> platonic. platonic orgy. A platonic orgy, exactly. <laughs> I started host, hosting platonic orgies um, where we bring people together to, to experience uh, the power and joy of, of human touch and connection through hugs and other creative ways of, of connecting. And this is something that's been on my mind for a while, but I was too chicken to do anything about it. But about a year ago, I finally mustered up the courage to invite a handful of friends to get together, and it's slowly been growing organically. And um, so that's been a, pa- a new passion. It's pushed me out of my comfort zone, let's I, put it I that bet. way. I bet it pushes a lot of people. <laughs> right? You yes. ready for the – now, okay, I'm, I'm imagining this. But do you just um, – but the bell rings and you have a group hug. Or no, no, you I'm hug I, individually. Well, or? it's a variety of things. I have I have sort of a, um, you know, a, a simple way to to bring people together. There's there's a little bit of structure, but also flow to it. And it's I've been iterating on this experience. I you know each month I, I try different things, but I keep some of the same things. But you know, strangers are coming together mostly, and so I have developed a series of exercises that just helps people drop their guard, create a safe container with the right intention. And when you do that, you know, people open up and, and people, people give and receive love through, through hugs. It's really an amazing thing. We've had several experiences where people came in, didn't know each other. And after two hours walked away feeling like we were family and had known each other for our whole Mm -hmm. lives. So anyway, so that's one thing that I'm that well, is well. If you commercialize that, I have the name already. Yeah, what's it going to be? Key Hugs. <laughs> that's hilarious that you bring that up because I th- I actually bought that domain name. <laughs> and some yeah, people thinking the same. Key way. Hugs. Just just take the the B and rotate it ninety degrees, and it's almost a G. So so that's interesting. Yeah, Key Hugs. Exactly. Um, so that's one thing that I've been dabbling in. And then I've also taken up a musical instrument. I'm really into Kirtan, which is a... a oh, say that again? Kirtan, K-I-R-T-A-N, Kirtan. It's like an Eastern form of devotional singing. Really? So you sing? I sing, yeah. I started to sing, which is like the thought of that a few years ago would have been terrifying. But yeah, over the last couple of years, I started learning a harmonium, which is like this... In, it's an Indian instrument adopted from Europe. So it's kind of like an accordion, but it's got a really wonderful uh, you know, vibration and sound. Does it have a keyboard? Yep, it's a keyboard, okay. exactly. And you pump it, you know, so it's like kind of like an organ. 
And um, I chant. I chant at home, and I've started to chant in circle uh, in a community of, of Kirtan singers. And it's it's non-denominational, so like you sing, we can sing Eastern hymns, Western hymns. Kirtan hub. Yeah, Kirtan hub. So those are two new passions. Well, that, that that's interesting because, well, I mean, from Indian tradition, uh, sound has some sort of holiness to it. Oh, right? absolutely. It's a magical power. Oh, yeah. Sound and mantra, these mm-hmm. meanings of the mantra, right. And so... Uh, this was something I had been exposed to my whole life as a, as a participant, but now I'm starting to uh, lead folks in song and be more intentional about creating community around it. And it's really because uh, when you chant together and sing together, that has some oh, sort of bond too. Absolutely, it's it's community and it's spiritual and it's it's uh, transformational. And so those are those are two new passions that have blossomed just recently in the last couple of years wow. that uh, that have been a beautiful sort of complement to my professional life, which is focused on mapping connections. Right, and, and technology. And technology, yeah. It's more tech, where this is very low-tech and and more develop, you know, blossoming of the heart and connection through sound and, and touch. Well, I think that's uh, our final piece of wisdom uh, for this program, is that uh, develop the diversity of, your, of, of yourself. Mm, yes. Your musical side, your physical side. Yeah, your absolutely. Consciousness side. Absolutely. Boy. I think uh, <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. We covered a lot of ground. You asked oh, great questions, Steve. It's a Thank you. pretty cosmic one. Well, boy, we're talking to Vikas Narula in this program. I uh, enjoyed talking with you, philosophizing, think tanking, as it were. And we'll be back next week. I'd like to thank our uh, producer, Dan Colhane, and also mention that this is a co production with WCCO Radio. I'm Steve LeBeau signing off for now. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. I'm Leo Espinosa. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.